Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with Feds or Vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Staying Connected. This is your host, Katie, and before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in these podcasts are those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of the Marfan Foundation. The Marfan Foundation is not responsible for and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in them, nor does the information constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This show is not produced by or affiliated with the Marfan Foundation or the VEDS movement. In the last episode, we talked to Karen DeCourcy, who finally got answers to many unanswered medical questions in her life when she was diagnosed with VEDS after a family member's diagnosis. Today, in the last episode of this season, we're going to talk with Christopher Underwood, a 54-year-old man with VEDS in New York who wasn't diagnosed until after a major medical event. Thank you so much, Chris, for talking with me and sharing your story on the show. I really appreciate it. Let's go to the interview with Chris. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your story on the podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Oh, sure thing, Katie. All right, so my name is Christopher Underwood. I usually go by Chris. I'm a 54-year-old male. Um, at the age of 52, I was diagnosed with vascular Ehlers-Danlos, something I didn't know anything about. Um, it was a total surprise to, to learn that, although not a complete surprise because earlier uh, in 2019, I had undergone emergency open heart surgery to correct an aortic dissection, something I also didn't know too much about other than the fact that my mother at the age of 82 had died from an aortic dissection. And I never gave it a whole lot of thought. We never did as my siblings because she was 82 and it just seemed like, you know, that's 82 is a good life. So when the ER doctor told me that I had the same thing that killed my mother, didn't register with me what that was still didn't register what that meant. And then the ensuing complications, there was, I had multiple complications that came out of it. I uh, spent 35 days in ICU and then a month in rehab before coming home. In addition to the open heart surgeries and the correcting the dissection, I uh, had a bad reaction to a common blood thinner medication called heparin. Mm-hmm. that uh, ended up causing clots in both feet. And in November of 2019, I had to have the front half of both feet amputated as a result of that. So the, the saga continued. And then my cardiologist that I got as a result of all my cardiac and vascular problems recommended I get genetically tested. And he called me with the news that I had been diagnosed positive for vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And then it was a matter of getting on the Google and figuring out what is this all about? <laughs> Along <laughs> yeah. with, uh, I'm sure, questions that many of us have had, like, what does this mean? One of my big questions was, what does this mean for life? How much, you know, is this like a cancer diagnosis? Do I only have so many months, years left to live? Uh, what, you know, it was a yeah. uh, tough diagnosis to hear. So that sounds like a complete whirlwind, and I want to take us back to the beginning-ish. Um, you mentioned that you had an aortic dissection before your diagnosis. Can you take us back to like what happened and that whole experience? 
Okay, uh, certainly, Katie. Well, first of all, a lot of people that aren't medical people don't understand what aortic dissection means. I didn't know what it meant, but basically there's three layers of your aorta, the main blood, blood vessel artery in your body uh, that you know carries blood everywhere. And uh, the three layers, basically in a dissection, they start coming apart. And obviously the worst case scenario is where the, op the last layer opens up in your chest cavity, and then it's usually fatal uh, in a short amount of time. But the other severe thing is blood can get in between the layers and it either blocks flow to organs or it blocks flow to the rest of your body. And uh, if left untreated, it's always fatal. So uh, uh, I was at work, I was getting ready for a meeting. I was just doing a bathroom break and was standing at the sink washing my hands when I felt what seemed like a slight muscle cramp. It wasn't really painful, it was just enough to notice it. And I tried to kind of loosen it up and shake it off. And when it, it really got my attention when I did all that and it didn't seem to change. It didn't get worse, it didn't get better, but it didn't go away. And it was it, uh, got the attention of me obviously. And I was sat down next to a coworker and was just trying to move around and shake it off. And he's like, what's going on? I said, I just got a weird pain in my chest and I think it's just a muscle cramp that'll go away. And uh, after a few minutes, I realized that there's, this is different. Like, I've never felt anything like this before. This is just really strange. And the place where I work has a medical facility on a medical response on site. So he ended up calling the EMTs. They came over and they, they checked me out and all my vitals looked pretty good. And uh, they're like, well, we can't really understand what's going on. They're asking about it. And Mm -hmm. They decided to take me to a local hospital for just, just just for evaluation. It's probably no big deal. We'll um we'll just take you there and they'll check you out. You'll probably be fine by the afternoon. And you know, it's just a heartburn or acid reflux or something. And so I, I remember the trip to the hospital. I only remember a couple of things in the emergency room, and that was the doctor. Well, one thing in particular was the doctor coming to me and telling me that. I had an aortic dissection in me, in other words, the thing, same thing that killed your mother. And I don't remember contemplating what that meant or comprehending it. I don't even remember what my reaction was, but I distinctly remember that conversation. And then they, uh, unbeknownst to me, is my wife telling me what happened later, but they were preparing me for emergency surgery and I got a life flight helicopter ride to Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York for emergency open heart surgery. And by one o'clock in the afternoon, I was in the operating room being opened up for life-saving aortic uh, dissection repair surgery. The only other thing I remember was the doctor at Albany Med giving me his cell phone and telling me to call my wife and tell her what my choices were. And that was, you can have this surgery and there's a 70% chance of surviving it, or you don't have surgery and you won't make it. So it made the choice kind of easy, but but no less difficult. Um, and all I could think to tell my wife was, I'm sorry. And I had no idea what was involved in the surgery to repair it. And then the next thing I remember was about three weeks later, finally kind of coming to and uh, realizing I was in a hospital and I didn't even know which hospital I was in. And, you know, I had family nearby, obviously, in my room there. And, you know, 
just trying to understand what happened because I had no idea. Yeah. So was the was your mom's aortic dissection the trigger for them to test you for VEDS while you were there, or how did that play out? No, that the testing was much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, the, the the whole event occurred July 24, twenty nineteen. I was not tested for VEDS until January of 2020. Interestingly, it was my cardiologist that I now have because of all this that suggested I get tested because he wanted to understand why. Mm-hmm. Because I do remember several conversations in the hospital. The hospital staff, the ICU nurses, they kept telling me and my wife that it was undiagnosed high blood pressure. That's 95% of reasons for dissections, undiagnosed blood pressure, high blood pressure. And I kept telling them, no, I don't, because I used to donate blood every two months. I said, I got 10 years of blood pressure readings to show that my blood pressure was not a problem, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to listen because they, they were convinced that that's what everybody dissects from is high blood pressure. And it was really only my cardiologist that was interested in finding out what happened. A 52-year-old male, they, just, they don't dissect. Yeah. Without, you know, some cause and uh, it wasn't high blood pressure. So he recommended I do the genetic panel to get tested because we didn't, I didn't have family history of VEDS. Um, neither one of my parents had been tested for it. They, they lived to be 78 and 82. So it was nothing unusual in their, their age of death. I had a sister that passed away at age 52 from a pulmonary embolism that you know, that obviously got my, my, my siblings attention. I was like, she was, she appeared to be the healthiest of us all, mm-hmm. but, uh, her husband was a doctor and he said that she had provoked clots and we kind of just, okay. It was just one of those things that happened. Um, yeah. so, uh, had no real family history of VEDS to my knowledge, other than you know, maybe trying to connect some dots uh, on stories that I heard, but any of my parents and grandparents, you know, if they had heart problems, it would have been a heart attack, you know, died of heart failure. It yeah. wasn't necessarily a dissection because they didn't look for that thing back then. Right. Uh, so what did they do to fix the dissection? So the first surgery was a, a open heart surgery. They went in and, and re- they basically replaced my ascending aorta from my heart to the arch or up to the top of the chest mm-hmm. where your aorta bent, turns around and heads down. They, re- they cut that out and replaced that with a Dacron hemoshield graft. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I had to go in the next day because they, I was bleeding. I, they had, it's, I continued to bleed. Uh, so they had to go in a second time. And that was probably the first clue that maybe there was something wrong with my connective tissue mm-hmm. because the uh, cardiothoracic surgeon had to go in and do a repair. And then about a week later, I was doing pretty well. And then I started going downhill with the uh, liver and kidneys started failing. And they were going to medically manage my descending aorta dissection. And... Um, they decided that that wasn't going to work because my vital organs were failing and they had to go in and they installed a T-bar stent uh, through my femoral artery and mm-hmm. put a stent graft in there all the way up to the arch where the other repair is and down about mid chest is the, so that restored blood flow to everything and, and uh, saved my life and kidneys and liver. 
that's where it stands right now as far as aortic repairs go. And has that remained stable now since that time? It, it does. I've had one, I've had about multiple CT scans. I uh, had a, a run of CT scans at the beginning of 2020. And then I had another like one year scans in April of 2021. Mm -hmm. And I've, 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 met with my vascular surgeon, vascular doctor, and he said everything looks good. Uh, interestingly, I, I'm not sure, I, he's obviously much more well-versed in these things than I am, but he says, yeah, everything looks good, you know? And I mentioned, he goes, you can basically do whatever you want. I said, what about lifting restrictions and activities? Ah, oh, you gotta be in a car wreck to hurt that thing. Well, I, I got to thinking about that, you know, that's probably, He's wanting to certify his work because he was the doctor that, that put that stent in. Mm -hmm. he, wants to, he wants to ensure that his work is good. And he knows I have vascular ADS. And it's just like that answer just seems too easy. Yeah. Uh, so in May, I had a follow-on telemedicine with Dr. Shalhoub. Oh, and uh, it was interesting because she said, yes, uh, the repairs look great. Everything looks good. You had good doctors doing that. But then she proceeded to go through my scan and said, you have an aneurysm here, an aneurysm there. And look at these little uh, shapes on your iliac arteries and your legs. That's the sign of VEDS. I said, nobody's ever told me that. Wow. And, and uh, it really is kind of bothersome to me that this vascular doctor, you know, he said his work was good, but what about the rest of me? Yeah. That's disappointing that he didn't say, you know, tell me I got a, another aneurysm down here that is still a big deal that we're watching it. Or tell me that, yeah, these iliac arteries look a little bit odd. It's probably because you're, I get it, he's not a VEDS expert. But tell me that it doesn't look normal, so you should have somebody check this out or I'll try to figure out what it means. And that part bothers me that, you know, everything, all the repairs were good. And here, you look really good. Everything's good to go. And it's not, that's not the case. Yeah, and that's that is probably why we as beds patients have are really have to be looking out for ourselves and be our own best advocate, because the only doc out of the team of doctors that I have, the only one that really seems to want to know the most is my cardiologist. Mm -hmm. But even still, he knows he doesn't know, and we'll try to find out. And he's a uh, I told him when I last had my appointment that I had had a, a medicine appointment with, with Dr. Shaloub and she was going to be my go-to backstop for anything surgically related, any kind of care. And he was pretty happy about that. Like, I'd love, you know, be happy to work with her. That's awesome. But, yeah. Those are like the best kinds of doctors, like the ones that either know a lot about it or are willing to learn and consult with the experts. Like in my mind, right. It's very frustrating to deal with physicians who don't have the interest to look further, right? Right, right. They don't know and they don't really want to know. And I get, I'm not a doctor, but they go through a lot of schooling. They learn a lot of stuff. They have to know a lot about the entire human body. And it mm -hmm. takes someone like Dr. Shalou with years of research to even know the, as much as she knows about it. and. So, yeah, you're right. I just wish those doctors would admit that they don't know it and either say, all right, I'm going to take this on and learn this or mm -hmm. 
I will work with your specialist because I don't know and I know I don't know. But unfortunately, a lot of them just don't know and don't care to know even anymore. Yeah, hopefully that changes over time. I know that is, it's been a really frustrating thing for me too. So I, I feel I feel like very connected to what you're talking about. Right. For sure. One of, I have a, one of the other presents I got from the ICU was the day before I was supposed to leave and go to rehab. I got woken up by the ICU nurse and she was making, and I was like, what are you bothering me for? I was sleeping. And unbeknownst to me, inside my bay was a crash cart because I, I apparently had a heart block and she was trying to revive me. Well, then the next day was the doctors were going, well, okay, I guess barely my heart stopped for 10 seconds. And, and uh, so doctors came in and said, well, we think you should get a pacemaker. And other doctor says, uh, it's probably just some sort of nerve response. I don't think he needs a pacemaker. And the electrophysiologist won out and I ended up with a pacemaker, which uh, my goal is to not have to use the pacemaker. And the nice thing is uh, I was on blood thinners for a while. I was on Coumadin when I came out of the hospital. And because of the pacemaker, my cardiologist agreed to get me off of Coumadin because he was concerned at the risk of bleeding because I have beds was, uh, was worse than not being on the blood thinner because of potential loss that might form. Mm -hmm. So he goes, well, because you got a pacemaker, we can cheat a little bit and, you know, monitor your heart a little bit better. Yeah. Of course, I'm always asking these questions like, well, before all this happened, I didn't have any problems with, with blood clots, with atrial fibrillation, with heart block. I mean, I lived 52 years and two months and whatnot without my heart being stopped other than my open heart surgery. Like, why is everything so screwed up now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, how did that, how did that whole experience feel to you? I mean, just, you know, there's so many questions I have about that, like how you coped with all of this because you know, having a major life-threatening event like that and then having a pacemaker like right before you leave the hospital basically and then finding out a few months later that you have VEDS. Like how how did all of that feel and how did you cope with it? Well, to be honest with you, uh, probably because I was passed out for the first three weeks of my stay in the hospital, the, the recovery from my open heart surgery and the dissection repair then really, I was basically, when I did come to, I was pretty foggy, still on mm -hmm. a lot of meds. So by the time I really became more cognitive of what was going on, that was when my feet started to kind of show up as a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was leading up to this, uh, I wouldn't say I was a hardcore runner, but I ran a half marathon six weeks before I dissected. And the thing that bothered me the most was uh, my feet need to recover because I want to be able to run again. And, you know, I realized I had an open heart surgery and a dissection and there were going to be limitations, but, you know, maybe I'll just take it slow and easy. So I, I guess, uh, so the hardest part, the hardest thing that I had to accept out of all these major things was the amputation of my feet Yeah. because I didn't know if I was even going to be able to walk again. Um, but eventually I, I realized I had no choice. It was, it is what it was. I had a doctor's appointment and one of the vascular doctors said, they're not coming back. You, you can't keep living like this because you may get an infection that could kill you. I was like, yeah, I don't want that either. So by the time I got to the VEDS diagnosis, I guess I was numb. <laughs> yeah. It was like, oh, okay. Well, what's, you know, it, 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 uh, it's the cause for 
at least my dissection. Now I understand what caused it. But I do remember just you know, like when I heard the news, it was like, oh, okay. I don't even know what this means. But, you know, but, you know, as I started to read articles and I, one of the first articles I read was, you know, the average lifespan of a feds person is 48 years old. And I was like, well, I outlived that. But now what? <laughs> Where do I go from here? Because I've already like I'm four years past the minimum or the average life. And uh, that was probably one of the more troublesome things that I read was the short lifespan was I came through all this and then I'm just going to like die in a couple of years. That, that was uh, some of the things I, I dealt with. But looking back, I, uh, I guess one of the things that kept me from being too despondent and wanting to end it all anything like that was probably my faith. Uh, it's a big part of my life. And I know as I hear stories about what happened to me in the ICU, I was told by doctors that, Hey, I would, when my kidneys and liver were failing, they said that I had lost my left kidney, that I would be on dialysis the rest of my life. I never went on dialysis, that I would lose my left kidney. And the last CT scan that I had shows that both are working fine. The day before I had the stent placed for my descending aorta, the doctors had told my wife that he's a very sick man and we're not sure he's going to make it. And then at some point, the the blood chemistry started coming back and looking really good. So I, I they, they can't seem to explain the recovery. I, I can't attribute to anything else and God was looking out for me and it wasn't my time yet. So hmm. I guess accepting my fate, if you will, is it's just kind of like, I, I can't do anything about it. So I'll just keep going on day by day and I'm, doing what I can to recover and try to get back to some sort of normalcy. And I will say that the, the Marfan conference last summer and this most recent one have been a goldmine of information for me to help me understand what I have and educate me on the condition and the genetic testing while it showed that I had it. It also provided some good news in my case and that I had the haploinsufficiency variant which I guess is the best of the worst, which would explain the late age. And mm -hmm. I asked Dr. Shalhoub this question of, so what, what's, what do you think is my life expectancy, you know, going forward? Do I have five years, 10 years? You know, I've gone back to work, but if they, they told me five years, I would retire today. Um, she said, well, the fact that you've been repaired, that you've been through what you've been through, and you made it through all that is a good sign. And there's no reason why you shouldn't live a normal life span. So that was uh, pretty, and I know none of us are guaranteed tomorrow, but uh, it was still reassuring to hear that from her. Yeah, so that kind of changed your perspective from when you were first diagnosed and looking at that like average life right. expectancy number. Right, and it was, you know, it took someone like her because some most of my, the vascular doctors here locally they're like, well, we can't tell you that. It's like, I, I get it, but <laughs> can you give me a ballpark figure? <laughs> Something. <laughs> you, know, you got one, one doctor saying, I can't tell you that you're going to live past tomorrow. And the other doctor saying, oh, you could, you're fine. You'd be in a car wreck to hurt that thing. And it's like, <laughs> what about my beds? What about the, what about the precautions with that? And, yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard when you get so much like different information and you don't know who to who to believe. Um, but I think you're right. Like we have to be like really cognizant, like as people with vets, to make sure that we're getting we're advocating for ourselves and getting the best information that we can. Right. I, I had a uh, I had a short bout of AFib back in February that my cardiologist said it was probably triggered because. Yeah, I had actually got an ER. I woke up about three in the morning and my heart was just all over the place. Mm -hmm. And they took some blood tests and he said, based on those blood samples, you look like you were fighting some sort of infection and it was probably just stress on your body. So I'll put that under the experience of if I don't feel, if I don't feel well, I'm going to take it easy instead of trying to push it and, you know, go for a walk and, you know, get up. I, like I'm, I felt like I was getting a cold, but it never really happened, but I did feel kind of run down. And so that notice to that is to just take it easy instead of trying to push through like I used to. But um, my electrophysiologist said I had an appointment with him in May or June. And he said, you had AFib back in February. You need to go get a uh, cardiac uh, or a, a heart catheterization. Uh, we just, we take a catheter and stick it up in your veins and, and go into your heart and burn a couple things. I was like, you can't stick a catheter up my veins. He goes, why, well, why not? I said, I got vascular EDS. And he just kind of like, didn't know how to respond to that. Uh, well, uh, well, you got to do something. And my cardiologist, he was kind of a different opinion of don't fix something that's not broken, said that. It was probably due to your illness and stress on your body, and we'll just let it go for now. And I've not had any problems since then. And, you know, that was another advantage to having the pacemaker is they were able to draw that history up. And, mm -hmm. you know, he said that you don't, you haven't had a problem since that, that one time, and um, we'll just keep monitoring it. But, yeah, yeah, got to keep tabs on the doctors, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great that you're connected with some experts, and it sounds like you have a really great, like, cognizant cardiologist on your right. team. So that's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's helpful. So looking back at your life before your diagnosis, I mean, you weren't diagnosed until you were 52, right? Right, right. So were there any outward features that you had this growing up or, like, retrospectively, things that popped up? No, not that I know of. I, um... I would I would call I call myself the ninety five pound weekly nerd. So I was more of the uh, the book nerd type activities. I played sports. I I enjoyed baseball. I played a little bit of basketball. Despite my six foot two height, I was not good at basketball. <laughs> uh, played a little bit of football in high school, but I didn't really engage in like physical activities like you know where I could have been hurt. I didn't ride horses. I didn't go rock climbing. I didn't, uh, play, you know, once I went into adulthood, I went and I, after high school, I went in the Navy. I was on a ship and operating propulsion plants, uh, for the carrier I was on, but it really wasn't a strenuous activity. Mm -hmm. I wasn't like I was special forces out, you know, riding horseback in the deserts and, you know, having to do extreme physical training to, to, be prepared for those kind of jobs. Uh, the Navy trained us. We had twice a year of physical tests, and looking back, they were not that difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in much better shape at 52 than I was when I was 20 in the Navy because you know, I was working out more. I was running, but you know, my career has been more in the academic field than 
than the physical field. But I had no problems that I knew of, no cardiac problems, no, I didn't, I, I, I go through the checklist of physical features of VEDS and it's like, nope, 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 yeah. nope. I, 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 I don't consider myself to have the facial features. I don't consider myself to be an easy bruiser. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, within the last few years, it seems like I kind of spontaneously, like, wow, popped another blood vessel. And that's probably a, a nature of VEDS, but it was not something I felt was a lifelong problem. You know, as far as, you know, like wounds healing, I never thought they were unusual, but I, I guess I don't know what else to compare it to. <laughs> you know, I look at my wife and I said, you know, you got more of the characteristic of VEDS than I do. But she's 50 and hasn't any problems. But uh, one of our children has been tested and he was negative. So if we both had it, he would have been positive. And so that's great. We can't, yes. we can't both have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really great news that he came back negative yes. for that. And two, two out of three surviving siblings have come back negative too. So my brother's been a little hesitant to get tested, but he's supposedly getting there and uh, we'll have the results shortly. So, yeah. What about your other child? Uh, she knows I have it, and she's an ICU nurse. But I have not heard whether she's gotten the test results yet back or not. So, okay. don't know. Still inconclusive. Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed. Right, but uh, if any one of our children had it, she probably did. But she was athletic growing up, played volleyball, did dancing, um, mm-hmm. did equestrian sports in her last year in high school would even fell off a horse at least once and um, wow. had no problems. Uh, I wouldn't consider her to be an easy bruiser. You know, she, I would say that she might have a little bit of joint hypermobility because her, when she, you know, flexed out her arms, it looked like her, her elbows had a little bit more mobility than most, but yeah. um, she, I wouldn't consider her to be double jointed. Um, so time will tell. She does get tested. Hopefully, she lets us know. I would um, hope so, but yeah, I, I will keep my I'll keep my fingers crossed for her that she doesn't have right. it, and that she does get tested. Right. So you weren't diagnosed until you were fifty-two, which is right. a bit different, you know, from a lot of people. But I don't think it's that uncommon now. It's I'm meeting more and more people who are diagnosed in their you know more midlife. Um, do you have advice for somebody else who? is going through what you went through, especially with the amputations too of your feet. Like how did you get through that and how would you how would you recommend somebody else get through that? Well, I, I've I've always <laughs> I've always had it in my life that, you know, I, I always kind of view it as as bad as I got someone else has it worse than me. Mm-hmm. And I would say that coming out of all my surgeries and then facing the amputation of both feet. I was like, wow, I am that guy. <laughs> like, I'm like, they might got it worse than me. And then I will, I will, uh, you know, as far as that goes, even I have a nephew who's a wounded warrior. And in 2011, he stepped on an IED and lost one part of both. Uh, I'm sorry, he lost the lower part of one leg along with other injuries. I went down and helped him and my sister when he first came back to the States. And in his recovery, I helped him. I was there when he took some of his first steps and I remember, you know, going outside with him and he was hooked up to five different wound vacs and sitting out there talking to him. And it was a hospital in San Antonio, Texas. 
And as we're out there watching these young kids with, you know, blown off limbs, uh, one guy, one of his buddies had lost both legs right below the, the groin area. I realized that as bad as this was, I didn't really have much to be sorry for because there's these young kids that went to serve their country and came back with missing limbs or worse. And, you know, I, I, I lost part of both feet. I still had my almost left of them. I still had the, most of my body parts. Apparently I got a few replaced in the process of my dissection, but I guess I, you know, looked to my nephew himself who lost more than I did and he survived. He, He's adjusted. He's gotten married as a child, um, has a, you know, got his degree and has a, a good job teaching, doing physical therapy, working with high school football kids. You know, I kind of looked at him a lot and yeah. some of his, some of his other buddies that have lost more body parts than I did. And, uh, it's like, if they can do it and they can pick themselves up, then I should quit crying about it and just move on. <laughs> and, yeah. I know it must've been hard though. And, uh, you know, I definitely had my down days. Uh, I remember telling my wife, you know, when I first was coming out, as I said, you know, maybe I should have just went because you would have been better off financially if I, if I moved on jokingly because, um, I mean, she's, you know, for three weeks I was passed out. I didn't know what was going on other than button-on-induced dreams. But uh, she had to sit there for three weeks wonder if I was going to make it or not. And mm -hmm. You know, and I try to be sensitive to the trauma she went through because mine was physical, but it was mental to, to watch me almost die more than once. She went through a lot of lot of difficulty with that. And, you know, when I finally did come home, she had to be my caregiver. I came home between cardiac rehab and before my amputation surgery, and she was having to give me IVs three times a day. Wow. So there was no way she was ever getting eight hours of sleep. She had to make meals for me, had to empty the, the urine bottle. And, uh, you know, it's just, it was a 24 hour demand on her. So I, I tried to be in positive spirits as much as I could, because <laughs> there was nothing I could do about my situation. I could do everything I could do to try to help her situation. And I remember the nurses in the ICU commenting about, you know, like, you're so chill. I've, I uh, ended up on a ventilator a fourth time. I remember the fourth time. I don't remember the first three, but I just remember being woken up by the nurse and waking me up. I was like, I'm trying to sleep, leave me alone. And then I remember waking up and I didn't know what, wh why was this thing? I remember being angry because like, why am I on a ventilator? Why am I on this thing again? Mm -hmm. And being angry about that and realized I couldn't take it off. And then, you know, I, I had no idea why. But then, you know, as I uh, kind of accepted my fate then. And so I, would, I had to write notes down because I couldn't talk. And they were telling my wife, yeah, he's just sitting there, you know, making write notes for y'all and, uh, you know, just kind of hanging out with the ventilators, you know. Yeah, I imagine, like, that's got to be so much mental stress to go through that, like being on a ventilator and everything. And, you know, it's great that you were able to maintain some kind of positivity through it and get through right. it. I guess it was just a matter of, I can't really change my situation. So there's no point in being miserable about it. And, um, you know, it's a, probably a combination of things. It was, you know, the fact that I was in the military and, you know, you always trained to, 
uh, trained for war, but then, you, you know, we always trained for casualties if the ship got attacked or, uh, you know, treating wounds of, you know, trying to arrest, you know, either recover bodies or treat, treat injured people. And, you know, you, you're the guy that you're sleeping next to in your, in your birthing facilities, you know, could be alive one day and dead the next. And, um, I did have a couple people that I were friends with, with the Navy. One guy was on the ship with me and he transferred to the Iowa and was killed in the turret explosion that everyone will be aware of in the news. So I did lose you know, buddies in the Navy, even though I wasn't in combat. And, um, so I don't know, maybe just, you know, being around difficult circumstances in my profession or whatever, it's, like just kind of more accepting of I can't change it so I might as well just deal with it yeah well if there was any last parting thought for the listeners that you would want to share about your story or anything like that what would that be you know today may be dark but the sun will rise tomorrow and uh, just keep looking for the next day you know uh, I, I as I look back on I reflect on my two-year I call it a anniversary. I have a lot to be thankful for I'm back at work. My feet are pretty well healed up. I'm, you know, trying to walk more and more each day to try to extend it out as far as I can to be healthy and recover as much as possible. I think I am probably as recovered as I will be considering that I'm a beds patient and a dissection survivor. It's just the new normal, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, pretty much everybody probably has family. So be there for your family, whether it's a, a spouse or children or parents or siblings educate yourself as much as you possibly can on what you have so you can learn to work with what you have i uh, i have a little saying i don't know if i invented it or someone else did but ignorance is bliss but knowledge is power and and in our situation knowledge is power and you know for coping um, i think my faith has a lot to do with it because i have hope for tomorrow um, and if it and if uh it doesn't work out that I'm not to be on this earth anymore, then I have hope for an eternal future, which also, you know, gives me something to look forward to. So that's always provided a lot of comfort and hope for me. So got a lot to be thankful for and a lot to thank God for. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and for sharing it with everybody on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for being here. Thank for all you, thank you for all you do and uh, for your organization. And it's a bit of, a blessing to me to learn as much as I have based on the resources that, that you and the group have provided for me. So it's been a, a comfort and help for me. Thank you. So thank you thank so much. You. Yeah, it really means, it means a lot to be able to, to do all of this for other people. And hopefully, you know, kind of like what you said, the hope for the, for the future kind of after right. you, I think is what keeps me going too. It's the, even right. if something right. happens to me, I know that this, this ball is rolling. It's, getting bigger and it's going to continue, you know, right. long after I'm gone. Yep. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. So we've got to make the best of today. That's right. Well, thanks so much again, Chris, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Katie. Thanks again so much, Chris, for sharing your story on the podcast. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. It's really been an incredible experience for me to talk with so many people about their stories. All of you really mean so much to me, and I cannot express enough gratitude to you for being such an amazing community. 
That's a wrap for this season, but this podcast will be back in the spring. I truly hope you've gotten a lot out of this season and were able to relate to the experiences of the wonderful people who shared their stories here. If you enjoyed this show, it would mean so much to me if you shared it with others to help us raise awareness of vets and consider leaving it a review in your podcast player. Thank you so, so much for everything. I love you all and I will see you soon.